reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, starting at verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is God's word. And thank you. Thanks for reading. Uh, Morning, everyone. Uh, My name's Matt Fuller, if we've not met let me lead us in prayer before we, uh, we turn back to this lesson 1 Thessalonians. Our great God and Father, here is a long list of uh, instructions for how we are to live, and we thank you for them. Thank you that you care into the details of our lives, particularly how we relate to one another when we gather. But Father, thank you more than that, that you are faithful and you are the one who brings us before you blameless. So, Father, would we hear your voice so you would be at work amongst us, sanctifying us through and through, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The, uh, the editors who put together these sort of different Bible translations, this one, the NIV then, you, you can tell when they've really understood thoroughly what's going on in a passage of the Bible because they give it a, a, an electric heading such as final instructions which um, I guess only is, has any pleasure if you've worked your way through a whole long list of instructions. If you're in a, I don't know, you're building an Ikea kitchen and you're on page 56 of the manual, uh, final instructions, <laughs> yay! Uh, that, that might be a bit more exciting. But uh, normally, not, not the most uh, tantalizing of words, final instructions. But of course, you have some sympathy because you, as I don't know what you made of it when it was read, there's a long list of well, quite staccato imperatives. It's a little bit like a spiritual shopping list. But I want to suggest to you that what's going on here is here is instruction on how Christians can live blamelessly. And that matters. It's been uh, uh, one of Paul's little significant words in this letter, more so here than any of his letters, really. Uh, and we get it in our reading today. 
uh, this prayer that Paul prays, chapter 5, verse 23, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was the uh, earlier prayer that he prayed, just back over a page, chapter 3, verse 13. May he, the Lord, strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God our Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with his holy ones. He's told them earlier himself, chapter 2, verse 10, that he had lived blamelessly amongst them. But twice he prays in this letter then that when Jesus appears, Jesus will find them blameless. Now that is not perfect, but beyond reproach in their manner of life, that is, they are living consistently with what they confess. They call themselves Christians, and they behave as Christians. That is, they stumble and they fall, but they repent and they get up and they try and make progress. Blameless, not perfect, but consistent. And twice he prays that they would get that way or live that way. And alongside that, he gives them lots of instructions to get that way. So really in this letter, if you want to live blamelessly, you need both the commands that God gives and his promise that he'll be at work to achieve it in them. You've got to have both. So I think perhaps a better, better title would be How to Be Blameless as Christians. Uh, this whole section then, uh, you get uh, the phrase brothers and sisters five times, verse 12, 13, 25, 26, 27. He's writing to Christians, telling them how to live. I, I guess you get this sort of passage in other places. Romans 12, 1 Peter 3 has a very similar sort of list. But here in 1 Thessalonians, blameless living. That's the sort of thing you only get in this letter. You don't get elsewhere. Here's how you live blamelessly, consistently as a Christian. Let's cut it like this. I'm going to suggest three things. Three things we have to do. And crucially then at the end, one thing that God does. Although there's a long list of uh, instructions, they mostly come up in threes, which is always pleasing for a preacher who likes threes. But um, let's put chop it into these three. Okay, Respect your leaders. Do good to one another. Shape your church gatherings. Those are three things for us to do. And then at the end he says, now look, the Lord will surely do it. Respect your leaders, do good to one another, shape your church gatherings deliberately, and then the Lord will surely do it. That's how we live blamelessly as a church. First, uh, verses 12 to 13, respect your leaders. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, verse 12, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work, live in peace with each other. Leaders are described in three ways, and the church is told to respond in three ways to them. So what are the leaders, how are they described? Well, verse 12, those who, first, those who work hard among you. It's a hard work word. It's a word that Paul would elsewhere use for a laborer. Sweaty work. Kind of doing anything today. But um, uh, hard work, physical work. Secondly, they are those who care for you in the Lord or, um, or are over you in the Lord, govern you in the Lord. You can translate it one or two ways. It's literally those who stand in front of you. But uh, 
those who care for you and do so by governing you. In Paul's thinking, those two come together. If, if you lead people, you're obviously doing it in their interest. You might cynically say that's not always the way, but that's how he reads it. So those who work hard, those who uh, lead you, protect you. And then thirdly, those who, in the verse 12, admonish you, tell you off. Or it's the same word as verse 14, warn those who are idle and disruptive. So church leaders are to work hard, they're to carefully lead, they're to warn, admonish. I guess the opposite would be, you don't want people who are lazy, who fail to ever lead, and uh, never warn you uh, of anything about that. But in one sense, it's much like Paul's earlier emphasis upon church leadership being like parenting. Remember in chapters 2, and three, sort of dominated by this image of parenting. And here again, here, parenting is well, it's hard work. You lead, you warn. And Paul says, now, leaders like that, those are the ones you want. Uh, how are you meant to respond? Well, the church is told to respond in three ways. Again, uh, acknowledge them, verse 12. That is, recognize that there is such thing as structure. Um, acknowledge them. Verse 13, Hold them in the highest regard in love. And end of verse 13, live in peace with each other. I think it's quite interesting. Paul describes pastors by their function. No one gets a title. It's just how they behave. And um, this is how you're meant to treat pastors whose actions are hard work, who lead and who admonish. Of course, you can go wrong on either side. If you do meet, have uh, a church pastor who is lazy, apathetic, doesn't do any leading, uh, never warns or rebukes, then I think Paul would say, treat them with disdain. You don't respect them. On the other side, you know, I, you know, you do hear of churches via peers who. Um, which are not at peace, which are somewhat at war with the church leadership. Don't want anyone to be in charge. And the result is chaos. But when you get this happy blend of uh, pastors, hardworking, leading, warning, at a church which values, then that is a happy place to be. But dare I say, I am very thankful to belong to a church family that does value hard work, a hard work that goes into Bible study, working on sermons, planning direction, that uh, sets aside some of us to invest in that, to draw alongside some particular, to draw alongside people in particular, to warn them, to warn the church. It's a happy place to be. So Paul says, look, if you're going to be a blameless church, You've got to have functional leadership. So respect your leaders will be the first. Second thing, he opens it out a bit more broadly to one and all. Verses 14 and 15, do good to one another. Seems to be a parallel start, doesn't it? Did you think that? Verse 12, now we ask you. Verse 14, and we urge you. Seems to be sort of moving into a slightly different thing. Uh, verses 14 and 15, then it's broader. All the imperatives here are plural, addressed to the whole 
congregation. So verse 13, we all urge you, uh, brothers and sisters, three groups highlighted again, and magic number three. Uh, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Well, back in chapter 4, he'd said, look, there are some amongst you who are freeloaders. We don't want that. No time for freeloaders. Paul said, look, I work with my hands. Everyone should be working hard. But you occasionally get that in church. We've had one, you know, over, I can think of years, over the years, one or two said, no, I, I, uh, you need to support me financially at the moment. I can't pay my rent. Well, why is that? Well, I, God has called me to be a professional singer. And uh, so I need to be available to, to, to do any work available. So uh, I can't hold down a job. You need to support me because God has called me to that. So you have to. Uh, and you think, mm, no, we don't. Uh, I think God's saying to you, get a job. Um, will be appropriate. But you, sometimes you get occasional freeload. And of course, always dressed up in slightly spiritual language. I got sent a magnificent little spoof the other day of um, uh, just a YouTube video of a, a couple who were claiming that they were missionaries to the scuba divers of the Caribbean island of Aruba. <laughs> and they said, God spoke to us very clearly one evening and told us that uh, we are, his will for our lives is to sit and drink cocktails with peers after a long day scuba diving, looking at the beauty of the oceans. And that is what God has called us to. Will you help us be obedient to the Lord? Uh, and, of course, the appeal for money. Now, it was a spoof. But the reason it was funny was because geez, sometimes it sounds a bit like that. Uh, certainly, as a church pastor, I get voluminous mail asking, uh, can you support this? And some of the appeals are pretty pathetic. Uh, no freeloaders, says Paul. Not interested in that. Warn those who are idle disruptive. A second little group, encourage the disheartened, anxious. Those assailed with doubts often. Those just about hanging on as Christians. Encourage them. Third little group, help the weak. Who are they? It just could be weak generally, I, I don't know. The main sort of weak group that are stumbling in, in the letter are those struggling with sexual sin. Is it them in particular? Don't know, it's not very clear. But then I think you get this final command in this section uh, or, or, um, that relates to all of them. So warn the idle, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. That is, be patient with all of those groups because they are a little bit trying. I had to admit that was those few words are the ones that sort of hit me hardest this week. Be patient with everyone, I think, with those groups in particular. Well, I don't want to be inappropriate, but uh, it's one guy around the fringes of church who emails about four or five times a week, me personally. Do, do you think I'm a good man? Do you think God still loves me? Why do you think uh, I haven't got many friends? Uh, do you think I'll make it to heaven? And it's just a little relentless. And I have to say, you know, and they're quite long as well. Uh, and when you get one every day, I do find myself thinking, oh, for goodness sake. Uh, and I'll reply once a week, um, sort of something encouraging. You think, oh, come on. And I read this and think, I need to be patient. 
And Lord, I, I pray you'll, you'll help him, change him. For years, words have just sort of bounced off him, words of the gospel. He's just not got confidence in Christ, but I pray you be patient with him. Again, this week, one guy came and see me, just he's constantly stumbling with sexual sin. And, and again, you see, I saw him again this week, you think, oh, again? Really? What does your repentance look like if you stumbled again? It's right to have firm words, it's right to rebuke, it's, it's right, you know, he's, he's wronged another individual. And yet at the point where I think, oh, I'm fed up with you. No, I'm, you must be patient. In every church family, there are those who stumble in different ways. Idleness, just anxious, downhearted, falling into the same patterns of sin. There's complicated stuff behind all these. Yeah, I know. And you and I are called to be patient with those who are sometimes the most draining. That's how Jesus treats us, of course. He's patient with us. But our frequent lack of faith, our errors, our sins. It's a good question, isn't it? Something like verse 14. Are we involved in doing that? Showing patience to some. What about verse 15 alongside it? Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. No retaliation, in other words. Don't retaliate. Do good to one another in church and indeed outside the church. Three, he loves his threes uh, there again. Don't retaliate. Well, that's interesting. That in, I realized I hadn't clocked this before. That's quite a common sort of basic instructions for Christians. So Paul gives it Romans 12, Peter gives it 1 Peter 3. It's almost something uh, that should be there in basic Christian instruction. You don't retaliate. That's not the way of the world. Was it Walter Scott? I couldn't quite remember. Revenge is the sweetest morsel to the mouth that ever was cooked in hell. Or simply, revenge is a dish best served cold. We know those sayings. But no revenge, no vengeance. There's no reason given here. I mean, elsewhere, uh, 1 Peter, uh, uh, Romans 12, Paul would say, no, because you can trust the Lord. The Lord will right all wrongs. You can trust him to do that. Or elsewhere, you know what it is to be forgiven. You can forgive others. But it's sort of basic Christian living, I think. It was very lovely this week to hear the testimony of someone who became a Christian just a few months ago, deeply wronged, profoundly wronged by a member of their family and said had been angry for years, but since becoming a Christian has found that anger dissipate, able to forgive, able to move on now without rancor. It's, you know, this wasn't why I became a Christian, but golly, that, that's just happened. My anger is swallowed up in the joy of knowing Christ. Respect your leaders. Do good to one another. A uh, third little category or third little grouping, I think. Shape your church gatherings rightly. That's a pretty broad bracket right there. But um, run with me on it. Shape your church gatherings 
rightly. Verses 16 to 18, here, this first little uh, group, they're all plural. And I think in a section, all the imperatives, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks. I think in a section addressed to brothers and sisters, it makes most sense that they're included with 19 to 22 about church life, what happens when we gather together as church, I think. But anyway, verses 16 to 18, you get a trio, and no doubt we do this all the time. These are the easy instructions, aren't they, in the Christian life? Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, and we all do that, uh, and there's no need to really comment. Um, Actually, we could dwell quite a long time on them, of course. Rejoice always, presumably like Philippians 4, it's rejoice in the Lord always. You can always do that, no matter what's taking place in life. He's always good. You can always enjoy him. He's always with you. He will take you home. He's good. Rejoice. You can do that any time, whatever life is bringing. I think that means, of course, that when we gather together, of course we recognize on any Sunday people are in a different place. And for some of us, the sun is shining, and for others, it is not. Our lives are dominated by grief. We're crushed. And yet, we must always be rejoicing in any Christian gathering. The Lord is always good. Rejoice always. Pray continually, uh, not relentlessly. Jesus warns against that, Matthew 6. Don't just babble on and on and on and on and on in your prayers. But continually, don't give up. Be persistent in your prayers. Pray. Pray for all sorts of things. Pray when we gather as a church. Pray for individuals. Pray for the church. Pray for our mission partners. Pray for the world. Pray for our leaders over us. Pray and don't give up on that. And then give thanks in all circumstances. Not all life is good, but there are good things to be thankful for. That prayer of general thanksgiving that we read together, it's good. Because we can always give thanks. You have to push against that, though, don't you? The news cycle. Uh, Events are more often bad than good. That's why when you get something like a royal wedding, everyone goes crazy because it's an event, which is good news. Uh, and there's, yeah, that's very understandable, I think. But in your average news cycle, there's more negative things than positive, or just a rule of thumb. When was the, you can ask yourself this, when I watch the news, whatever it is, news at 10, or whatever it may be, at the end of 20 minutes, half an hour, am I more encouraged or a bit flat? And generally, you get to the end of the news and go, a bit tricksy, the world, lots going on. Uh, you don't get to the end of it and go, oh, 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 I feel much cheered up now. Uh, Look at all those marvellous politicians. Aren't they just wonderful, doing such a great job? Uh, And I'm not being cynical. Life is complicated. But uh, you have to work against it somewhat to be thankful because lots of the information we receive in is, golly, the, the world is a difficult place. So you have to push back. I wonder if these three are mutually reinforcing, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Um, if you pray lots, well, you see answered prayer and you give thanks, I guess. If you're thankful, if you constantly give thanks for the things that you've been given, well, you're more likely to be joyful. I guess it works like that. There's a virtuous cycle of holding those three together. Verse 19, what's that doing? It seems to sit in the middle, I think, between uh, that block, that's Trambrot, 16 to 18, and the next one, I think. 
So verse 20 seems like a headline over the next block. Verse 20, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but three things. Test them all, hold on to what is good, and reject every kind of evil. Huh. There's a large topic we could easily spend time on several weeks. But prophecy, of course, in the Bible, it's not just foretelling the future. It is forthtelling. It is reminding people of God's word, applying it into the world, into their lives. Now, there clearly was something going on in Thessalonica that we don't know about. Was it that everyone was claiming to have direct revelation from God? And so the church is just cynically saying, oh, shut up. Uh, And every single word of, every single claim to come from God was being rejected. I don't know. But Paul's headline, verse 20, don't treat prophecy with contempt. Three things. Test them, hold to what is good, reject every kind of evil, what is not good. How do you test what someone says? Well, there are numerous places you turn to in the Bible that give you instruction. One, you, you, Acts 17, you weigh it against Scripture. Like the Bereans, they're good at that, we're told. Acts 17, they weigh everything that is said against the Scripture. That's one test you'd want to apply. Or a second one, Galatians 1, does it agree with the message of grace alone? If it doesn't agree with the fact that we're saved by the work of God in his grace and by him alone, we'll reject it. Uh, another one verse, uh, another sort of way of test, Matthew 7, Jesus says, how does a prophet behave? You'll, you'll know them by their fruit. So if someone's message is out of sync with their behavior, if their behavior isn't Christian and consistently so, just ignore them. It doesn't matter what they're saying which I think tangentially means if you don't know someone and they say, oh, I've got something to tell you, sit very lightly to it. You hear with confidence words from people you trust because you see, you see their lifestyle. Does it edify will be another one? 1 Corinthians 14 has to build up the church. There are some tests you'd apply. How does it fit with Scripture? Uh, does it fit with grace alone? Uh, uh, what's the behavior of the, of the person speaking like? Does it build up a church? Those sorts of things. So don't reject everything, says Paul. Do test what's said. But I wonder, therefore, if this verse 19 sort of sits between these two sets of instructions. Don't quench the spirit. And you can quench the spirit of God by a lack of joy, a lack of prayer, a lack of thanksgiving. Or you could quench him by just dismissing anyone claiming to bring you a word from God. But be deliberate in what you do in church. Three things. I think you can summarize them in those ways. Three things. Respect your leaders. Do good to one another shape your church gatherings. You do those things right, and that'll help you create a blameless church. And yet, very happily, wonderfully, he finishes on verses 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. You have to hold these things together. To, to make progress in the Christian life, to be blameless, 
you have to obey the commands of God. And you have to trust his promise. That he would do it. That by his spirit, he will transform you so you live this way. But it isn't a passive thing. He transforms us by issuing commands which we obey. Let me put it this way, it's a bit daft. But um, uh, when I was younger, my mother was very keen that her children learn to cook uh, and so could be competent themselves. And so I remember observing my sister, who's a few years older than me, learning to cook, and it came to my age, and instruction came. Uh, And there came one fateful Sunday, I think I was 12 years old, uh, when my mother said, this Sunday, you will cook the roast for the family. Now, we were not a Christian family. We were not going to church. But uh, Sunday lunch was quite a big thing. We'd always have others over. My grandmother came over every week, uh, and she was somewhat of the matriarch. And everyone really awaited her verdict upon dinner. It was all silent until she'd say, too chewy, or whatever it may be. Uh, but um, so it, was, it just felt like quite a big deal. Um, you, you, uh, it's your time has come. And uh, you will now cook uh, Sunday lunch for the family. Now, that could easily have been a pretty crushing task, a sort of overly demanding uh, request of me. But of course, she did help. She purchased the the ingredients. They were all there. I didn't have to go uh, hunting for them. She helped me plan it out. The key to a roast dinner is just all about timings. It's not complicated if you get the timings right. So you, you know, plot the timings on a piece of paper. This will happen then, okay? So you, you, you've got all of those. Uh, she didn't leave the house. She did sort of hover. And every so often we'd be a little bit, um, uh, have, you, uh, have you put the potatoes on to boil? Um, before they go, have you, uh, have you thought about the past steps going in yet? I mean, there's little instructions uh, along the way feeding in. Have you made the batter mix? Uh, for the Yorkshire pudding. So, you know, all these things, they're, they're, they're just going to be fed along the way. And I did it. And in my mind and in my memory, it was magnificent. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? There was a command, but she gave me everything I needed so I would not fail. She was Faithful. She made sure that the meat was cooked through and through. Now, the Lord God is one who says, here's how you live. You live like this. I require you to be blameless when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. Not perfect, but just living consistently. Your profession of faith is demonstrated in your actions. Yeah, that's what I require. And I will do it. My spirit is within you. I will do it. My son has died for you. I will do it. Now obey my commands. There are commands and there's a promise. You have to hold them both together. That's why Paul can pray. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. He will do it. Verse 24, the one who calls you is faithful. The God who came to die for you in Jesus Christ is never guilty of a half job. He finishes his work. He's faithful. If you're calling yourself a Christian here this morning, he has called you to that. He will be faithful to the end. So obey his commands. 
He'll make sure you're blameless when he comes. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we pray along with the Apostle here that you would make our love increase and overflow for one another, that you would strengthen our hearts so that we'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. Would you, do, would you be amongst us doing that work so that we well, rightly respect our leaders. We do good to one another. We don't give up. We're patient with those who are struggling. We rejoice. We pray. We give thanks. We love you. Father, we're so grateful. As we listen to all these instructions, we know that they are for our good. But we're thankful and grateful to know that you are faithful and you will do it. Amen.